chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm going to stop right there this morning. And, and I had this plan this week when I was working on this message. I was actually going to do this this morning. I want to give you a pop quiz. And so you can participate at home. This is an optional pop quiz. So uh, you can participate if you want to or, or not participate if you don't want to. I know how we all love pop quizzes. And, uh, and I know how we all love when preachers sort of spring things on us. You're probably relieved that you aren't here this morning to have to do this. But what I was going to do is, um, is ask you a question. I want you to write down an answer. So I'm going to give you the question. I'm going to give you a partial answer. And then if you're participating at home, I want you to answer the question, finish the answer in 10 words or less. And I was actually going to have index cards on your seat this morning when you got here so that we could actually do this in person. We could answer this uh, question in person. And here's the question. Here's your pop quiz. The question is, and write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. What is your purpose in life as a Christian? What is your purpose in life as a Christian? And so just Take a moment to answer that. And I'm going to give you the first part of just the first part of the answer. The first part of the answer should look like this. My purpose in life as a Christian is, and then 10 words or less, you should be able to answer that question. So you don't want to get too lengthy. You, you don't want to answer it with too many words, but just in 10 words or less, finish that answer. My purpose in life as a Christian is, 10 words or less, answer the question. And then what we're going to do as we walk through the message this morning, is we're basically going to be checking our answers against this passage in 1 Peter, against what God's Word says. So Peter is going to answer that question for us. What is our purpose in life as a Christian? So let's just walk through the passage of Scripture together and and answer that question. So Peter begins the passage today with this contrast. Remember, I ended there last week. If you were here last week, and you listened to the message last week, you remember that at the very end of the message, I sort of introduced this week's message by pointing us to verse 9, where we have this contrast, where he says, but you. And so what he's doing is he's marking this contrast between what came before and what's getting ready to come. And the contrast he's making is between those who are unbelievers and those who know Christ as their Savior. And so Let's look at the contrast. So in verse 6 and 7, Peter has, or, or verses 6 through 8, really, Peter has, has taken and, and focused his attention on people who don't know Christ. And he talks about Christ as the stone, verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then in verses 7 and 8, he makes these statements about unbelievers. You might remember this from last week. So he says three things about them. He says, number one, that they have rejected, excuse me, they have rejected Jesus. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe 
and here's where he's going to address them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so this idea of these people, first of all, have rejected Jesus. And then secondly, he says they stumble over him. In verse 8, he says that Jesus has become a stone of stumbling. And then they also are offended by Jesus. So it says that he has become a rock of offense. So they stumble over Jesus. Uh, They see Jesus as an offense. They've rejected Jesus. Then in verse 9, there's this contrast where Peter says, but you... And thank God that that that's not a statement about us, that we haven't rejected Jesus and stumbled over Jesus and and become offended by Jesus. He says, no, but you, you're supposed to be different. So listen up. Peter's talking uh, to us, to, to people who call themselves Christians. Listen up. He says, but you, verse nine, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own Possessions. So he's going to talk to us now about our identity as Christians. That's really what verse 9 and 10 is, is all about. He gives us this statement about our identity. Peter says that Christians, first of all, he said three things about unbelievers. Now he's going to say three things specifically about believers. He says, first of all, we are a chosen race, that, that we have been chosen by God. And he starts, remember, that's not a new theme. That's how Peter starts the letter. If you flip back over to chapter 1, verse 1, as Peter greets the people, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So these are the elect, these are the chosen, the people who've been chosen by God. So Christians are those who've been chosen by God. Paul talks about it in his letters where he says we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We were predestined in Christ. So we are his chosen race, chosen by God. And then he says, secondly, in verse 9, that we are a royal priesthood. So we're a chosen race and we're a royal priesthood. So we serve as priests. To the king. We serve as priest of the king. We're, we're there to, to serve in his court. And then he says that we are a holy nation. That's the third thing he says. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a, a holy nation. A nation of people who are different. We've talked about this before. And in, in, as we've been walking through First Peter, this idea of being set apart, this idea of being holy. So we're a holy nation, set apart, different. And then he says, and I love this, he says that we're a, a people for his own possession. We belong to God. We belong to God. So we could spend a, a, a week probably on each of those statements. I mean, we really could. We could do a, a whole sermon series just on verse 9 and what Peter tells us about our identity in Christ, But I'm not going to do that. For our purposes today, I just want you to understand that the description of us as Christians is significant because what Peter's doing here is he's taking language and imagery that was used specifically of Israel, specifically in the Old Testament. This language is used to describe Israel and their relationship to God. And now what Peter's done is he's taken that language that applied to Israel And he's applied it to us as Christians. I mean, this is really significant, right? That we are God's people. 
that, that we are a people for his own possession. This is language that, that God used to describe his relationship to Israel. Think about what that means, that we're his people, that we're his possession. In the Old Testament, only Israel could lay claim to that. Only Israel could say that we are truly God's people and we, uh, we assume or appropriate all the benefits of being God's people. So only Israel could say that in the Old Testament. But now we can claim the benefits of being the special people of God. He, he protects us the same way that he protected Israel. He provides for us the same way that he provided for Israel. He leads us the same way that he led his people Israel. He promises us rest the same way that he promised Israel rest as they entered into the promised land. So look at verse 10, where where he just sort of, Peter, what he does in verse 10 is just sort of takes all that he's said in verse 9 and summarizes it like this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So most of Peter's listeners, or readers rather, were Gentiles just like us. Most of them lived outside of the community of God's people. But now, because of what Jesus has done, They've been adopted into the family of God. We've been adopted into the family of God, and we belong to Him. We're His possession, and that's such good news. It gives us confidence, really, to know that that we are His people, His possession. We are God's special possession. That gives me great confidence in my life. Listen, think about it like this. When I was younger, um, when I was a kid, I lived in Beltsville, for a few years. My dad was pastor at uh, Beltsville Baptist Church. I think it's called First Baptist Church of Beltsville now, but either way, back in those days, dad was the pastor at Beltsville Baptist Church, and the church property in those days, I don't know how it is now, but, but back then the church property was sort of a gathering place for all the young people in the community because we had big open space. You know, there wasn't much open space in our neighborhood. It was just houses and and little small yards and sort of packed in there. So the church was kind of like the neighborhood playground. Uh, We had places there. We had fields where, or not fields, I mean, just a big yard, big open yard where we could play football together. We had basketball hoop up at the top of the, um, at the top of the parking lot where we could play basketball together. And so all the kids would gather there at the church property, and we would play football, and we would play basketball, and that's just what we did with our days. But as you can imagine, as, as a bunch of young people gathered together, and a bunch of uh, young boys especially gathered together, and they're playing sports, and they're competing, a lot of times we would find ourselves in conflict with one another. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what a better way to say it is. Uh, I mean, you, you get the idea. A lot of times what would happen is, Fights would break out. We get in some disagreement, and uh, usually it's no big deal. You just sort of have a, a fight like boys did in, in those days, and, and you got over it, and you picked up and, and started playing the game again. But, but occasionally what would happen, especially on the basketball court, is that some of the older kids from the neighborhood would show up, and they would show up, and sometimes they would just kick us off the basketball court. They wouldn't allow us to come on to the basketball court. They would sometimes take our basketballs and kick them as far as they could and, and just run us off. And 
And a lot of the kids were scared when they would see these older kids coming. But I had a trick up my sleeve because I knew that just uh, a few feet away at the church and right inside the, the door was my dad in his office. And so I would go. I, I had this trick up my sleeve. If I saw them coming or they started bothering us in any kind of way, I would just slip over to the church, go in the office and tell my dad because I had absolute confidence that my father would protect me. I had absolute confidence that my father would would stand for me and do what was best for me and come to my defense. And think about that. I knew that because he was my father. The same way that I will protect my kids and, and love my kids and come to the defense of my kids. A father does that for his children. And think about what Peter's saying here. He's saying that, that we now belong to God. So we have a father in heaven. And so just like when I was a, a kid who was so confident that my father could always protect me and intervene for me and do the right thing for me, we can now say that our father is in heaven and he will protect us and he will provide for us and he will do what's best for us. He'll come to our defense. We belong to him. So we're his possession. So, so he gives us this hope and this confidence about belonging to God. But it's what Peter says in the middle of these verses that, that I really want us to focus on. Because what he makes clear here, and this is easy to understand, I think. I was, I was having a discussion with some guys the other night. And uh, excuse me, let me get a drink of water, my... I, you know, usually by the time I get up here to preach on Sunday, I've been through worship practice. We, we get here at 830 and, and sing for an hour or so. I've, I've been talking to people and then I've come back in and I've, I've gone through the worship set with our worship team and we've been singing, talking, praying. And um, my voice is nice and warmed up, but this morning it's not. This is the first time I've really um, spoke this morning. So I'm, I'm, my throat's bothering me a little bit. So give me a second. Uh, hopefully I don't get a coughing fit during the message. But, but let me get back to what I was saying. So, so Peter here is going to give us something that I think is really easy to understand. And what, what I was saying before I stopped is I was meeting with some guys the other night and we were talking about the Bible. And one of the points that I tried to make as we were having this discussion, we were talking about whether or not the Bible is difficult to understand or whether or not we can really even understand it. And my argument was, I think the Bible is pretty easy to understand. I mean, I do think that there are difficult things in the Bible. There's no doubt about that. But the message of the Bible, far and away, the overall message of the Bible is easy to understand. And we have an example of that here where he makes a clear and easy to understand statement about the purpose of God's people, about what our purpose in life is about Christians. So he doesn't just talk about our identity in these verses. He also specifically talks about our purpose. And so look at verse nine, because here's where we're going to answer that question. Remember, I gave you the pop quiz earlier and I asked you to write down your answer. Now you're going to get a chance to compare your answer with Peter's answer for us in verse nine. Look at it again, where he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that, in order that. So here's the answer to the question. That you may proclaim 
the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So this is the answer to the question. Listen to it again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And so we have that question. What is your purpose in life as a Christian? What is my purpose in life as a Christian? And here's the answer. I said, answer it this way. My purpose in life as a Christian is dot, dot, dot. Here's the answer. My purpose in life as a Christian is to proclaim the excellencies of God. To proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, we have to get this right. Hear me on this. We have to get this right because I, I, I believe really firmly that, that a lot of people are frustrated spiritually, that they don't find any fulfillment in their Christian life, that, that they can't seem to, to find any joy in their Christian life because they're pursuing the wrong thing in their Christian life. Or they're, they're, they're maybe pursuing the wrong purpose in their Christian life. So we have to get this right, or you're just going to end up getting spiritually frustrated. For instance, like your purpose and my purpose in our Christian life is not to be happy. I mean, I, I feel like that, that, that this is one of the purposes or, or one of the things that, that we hear a lot from, from teachers, popular teachers, from Christian books, from, from the radio, from all sorts where we get this barrage of information saying, listen, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to, to be happy in your life. And that's what this is all about. I want you to know that that's not the primary purpose of your Christian life. Like, it's, am I happy in my faith? Yeah, most of the time I am. By the way, happiness is not joy. You know, happiness is affected by circumstances. So I can be happy right now. I feel pretty good right now. I'm not in a bad mood right now. Um, I can walk out this door today and slip on the snow, break my wrist. I'm not going to be happy. Like it comes and goes. So I can be happy in my faith. And I hope that you're happy today. I want you to be happy, but I also want you to know that's not the primary purpose of your Christian life. And, and the primary purpose of your Christian life, the purpose is not to find peace. Like, I mean, you should find peace in your life as a Christian, knowing that you've passed from darkness into light, knowing that you've been saved, that, that you are no longer an object of wrath, knowing those things should give you peace, knowing that there's no fear now for you in, in death because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, knowing that you won't be judged because of uh, or judged for wrath but rather you'll be judged for reward. I mean, those things should give you a great deal of peace, but peace is not the primary purpose of your Christian life, and, and it's also not personal fulfillment, like just being fulfilled. Like some, We hear a lot that, that you know, for us something's missing in our life, and that's true. Like you were created to have fellowship with God, and so... If you don't know God and if you don't know Christ, then of course something's going to be missing in your life. And there are literally billions of people on the planet right now who are missing something and they know they're missing something. They just don't know what it is. But of course we're not going to be fulfilled without Christ. But again, that's not the ultimate 
purpose. The ultimate purpose is not personal fulfillment. The ultimate purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of God. Listen to how this works out or, or what this really means. Listen to how one commentator says it. He says, seeking our own well-being, right though that is, like you should seek your well-being. So seeking our own well-being, right though that is, could never provide a truly satisfying goal for life. The answer to our search for ultimate meaning lies in declaring the excellencies of God. For he alone is infinitely worthy of glory. Redemption is ultimately not... Listen to this statement. Please listen to this statement. Like, if you get nothing else out of this message today, if, you, if, if nothing else really even seems to touch your heart today, I hope that this will. Redemption is ultimately not man-centered, but God-centered. Your redemption, your salvation, my redemption, our redemption is ultimately not about us. It's about God. Redemption is not man-centered. It's God-centered. We've been called out of darkness into this marvelous light, not so we can make much of ourselves, but so we can make much of our God. Not so we become the centerpiece. Listen, listen to what I'm about to say. I wrote this in my notes. I underlined it in my notes. I put it in bold in my notes this morning. I drew four arrows to it in my notes, and I have two stars next to it in my notes. Listen to what I'm about to say. You will never find true fulfillment in your faith if your highest priority is your own spiritual well-being. Listen to that again. You will never find true fulfillment in your faith if your highest priority is your own spiritual well-being. Listen, we've got to stop being so man-centered. We've got to stop being so utterly consumed with what touches us individually, with what seems meaningful to us, with what helps us individually. We've got to stop that because it's not about us. If you're searching for fulfillment in your faith and you've made the highest priority in your faith, finding your own spiritual well-being, you're going to be frustrated. You've totally missed it. We're told in verse 9 that that we've been chosen, that we're a royal priesthood, that we're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All these things are true so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. Out of us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so completely discouraged many times by the things I hear coming out of the the loudest voices in American Christianity. Because what I hear is about how to have an excellent life and and how to to live your life the best way and, and how to 
find peace in your personal life and, and how to find fulfillment in your daily walk. And, and it seems like the entire book that, that we take this, this book, the revelation of, of God to us in his word, and we flip it upside down and we make it all about us. When in fact, really, this is all about God. It's about making Him known. He saved us to become His ambassadors, to plead with the world on His behalf, to make His glories and His excellencies known. So what does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of God? If this is in fact what we've been called for, what does it mean to do it? What does that statement mean? What are the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are the excellencies? I think it's pretty simple. Again, in the margin of my Bible, I, I have this written down. It just says, I have a little arrow pointing to it. I, I wish you could see it. I don't think you're going to see it. It's right there. If you could see that, I don't know if you can. A little arrow pointing to excellencies. And I just have this written down. All he is and all he has done. His excellencies are all that he is and all that he's done. I proclaim the excellencies of God by making known all he is and all he has done. It's this simple. We exist as Christians in order to make known to the world all that God is, all that He is, all who He is, and all of what He's done. I mean, just think about the commission of Christ, that we're to go into all the world and be witnesses for Him. That's the point of being a Christian. Proclaim the excellencies of God. Make Him known. Make His person known. Make His works known. That's the purpose. And so now the next question is, well, then how do we do it? How do we do it? And I'm going to do this quickly. I mean, I know I started early. I started at 1030. I know there's not been any worship, so maybe this isn't such a victory. But I think I'm going to be done before 1130. So how do we do this? How do we make His Excellencies known? How do we proclaim to the world who God is and what God has done? Well, here are several ways. One, and you might not be expecting this. I think this is so critically important and so often neglected that we've got to get this right. I proclaim or we proclaim the excellencies of God. We make him known by being part of a church. You might not have expected me to say that. Maybe you did. I don't know. But we make him known by being part of a church. You are meant to be part of the church, not just the universal church. You know, we, we talk about church in two different ways. We talk about the church universal and we talk about the local church. And what those two things mean are not necessarily what they sound like. So when we talk about the universal church, we're not talking about uh, universalism or anything like that, where we think that everybody is saved. What we're saying when we say the universal church is we're saying that 
all, all people anywhere on the planet who know Jesus as their Savior are part of the universal church. The church exists, capital C, all over the world, all those who know Jesus. But then there's also the local church. And sometimes when we say that, People think we're talking about like the local church building, something like that. No, what we mean when we say the local church is we mean a gathered body of believers. Those who've come out of the big church, I'm trying to get my C's right for you. The big church, big C church, and they've been called out and they've gathered together now in a local body like this group of believers at Burntwood's Church. We gathered together, members of the universal church gathered into the local church in order to accomplish the mission of the church. That's critical. Like, I, I, I am deeply concerned about the trend that I see now in American Christianity, and I don't know if it's our culture in Central Maryland. I don't think it is because I, I feel like this is being reported everywhere, but particularly in the last decade or so since I've been here, what I've seen is this trend where people do not want to commit to the local church. They just want to be part of the universal church and sort of dabble in the the local church. I had a professor at seminary, uh, Dr. Uh, Logan Carson, who used to say that, that people just like to shack up with the church. They never wanted to get married. They never wanted to commit. He called it shakarosity. You'd have to know uh, <coughs> Dr. Carson to understand him saying that. But people want to shack up with the church. They don't want to commit to the church. But we're called in the New Testament to commit to the church. And don't miss here that in this statement about our identity, Peter describes us in every way he describes us. He describes us as corporate in nature. So he doesn't single us out. He doesn't speak of us as chosen individuals. He speaks of us as a chosen race. So an entire race of people who are chosen. He doesn't speak of us as individual priests. He speaks about us as a royal priesthood. So it's the, the entire priesthood, not just the individual Priest, and he doesn't speak of us as holy individuals. He speaks of us as a holy nation. So he has the whole church in mind here. And he does not rule out that we are individually called and gifted and equipped to do different things within the church. That's certainly what the Bible teaches us. But the primary thing that we can take from, from the terminology here and elsewhere in the New Testament is that we are meant to be together, to serve together. He has the whole church in mind here. So, so this is a, a group of people fulfilling the purposes of God together, gathered together, not as individual Lone Ranger Christians. And so let me say this to you today. If you're out there listening, and I know, by the way, that we're in a weird world right now. Hopefully COVID will pass us by soon, and we can all be back together and sort of resume our activity and, and the mission and everything that, uh, that makes us a church. But so, so I know that it's still a little bit of a strange season right now where some of you can't be here, and that's okay. It's not just about attending 
The church, I hope you understand that. It's not just about coming here. It's about being an active part of the body. Proclaim the excellencies as being an active part of the church. If you're listening to this today and, and you are still living out your existence as a Christian in the, the Lone Ranger sort of fashion, you need to repent of that. Let go of your pride and become part of the church. You never accomplish as much for Christ alone as you will as part of the church. If you are called as a Christian to proclaim the excellencies of God, to make Him known and to make His works known in the world, if you're called to do that, please understand that you will never ever be able to do as much alone as you can being part of the church. And it's a prime example of this. Just last week, I think it was last week, I was on a phone call with, with Emmanuel Mensah over in Ghana. We were talking and he was telling me stories about the ministry that they're involved in there. And he was telling me stories about how they've reached out to some young people and they've begun to reach some young people in their community, their church is engaging these people who formally or, or currently, I guess, whatever, when they were reaching them, you know what I'm trying to say, when they began to engage them, these young people were involved in all sorts of tribal and traditional religions and idol worship, and they were able to reach these people, some of these young people, in such a way that they gathered together some of their idols and brought them, and they wanted to burn their idols and give their lives to Christ. And I say to that, we all, if you understand the relationship of our church to Emmanuel's church in Ghana, you understand the relationship of how you give in support of their mission there, you understand that we are all reaching those people together. I couldn't do that alone. You couldn't do that alone. He couldn't do that alone. We do it together. And I can tell you stories like, I mean, think of the, Literally tens of thousands of people who've heard the gospel over the last eight or nine years in places where they otherwise may not have heard the gospel because of the effort of this church and our partners on the ground in West Africa. Working together to get the gospel to people. We are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're making known who he is and what he's done and we're doing it together. So we do that as part of the church. We use our gifts. We come together, each part of the body, working with another part of the body, working together to make him known. So you make him known by being a part of the church, not attending the church, but being a meaningful member of the local church. Gathered together, utilizing our gifts, for the sake of making him known to the nations. We make him known, secondly, by our actions. We make his excellencies known by our actions. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I'm going to come back to this next week. It's going to be, uh, we're we're going to look at this more deeply next week. But let me read it for you. Look at verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, and, and this is, about our actions, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. 
your conduct, the things you do, your actions, make sure that it's honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And I feel like what we're hearing here from Peter is what he learned from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The world sees us as representatives of Jesus and either our actions make people have a lower view of our God or a higher view of our God where they eventually have to give him glory for what they see in us. So our actions matter. That's one of the ways that we proclaim. And I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to go any further on that. I'll get to that next week. But let me just give you the, the last thing about how we proclaim the excellencies of God. We make them known. Here you go, just summary. We make them known by being part of a church, working together, using our gifts. We make them known in our actions, and our conduct in the world. And we make them known... This is the simplest way. We make him known by telling others what we know about who God is and what God has done. Listen to that again. We make him known by telling others what we know about who God is and what God has done. Have you told anybody lately what you know about who God is and what God has done? One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in the Gospel of John where Jesus is traveling through Samaria, breaking all the normal cultural barriers of his day. He's traveling through Samaria. He stops at a well, and he's resting there because he's wearied from his journey. And a Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. Excuse me. A Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink, and they begin this dialogue back and forth. And she's surprised that Jesus is speaking to him or to her because Jews typically don't speak with Samaritans. There's this enmity between the two culturally. They don't engage with one another. But Jesus begins this discourse with this woman at the well, which eventually leads him to say, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. Because you're shacked up and it's not the first time, and you've got, and he just starts walking through her life and telling her things, intimate details about her life. And she's blown away. And eventually, she tries to deflect long enough. And eventually, she says, Look, eventually the Messiah will come, the promised one will come, the one who God promised. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah, I am the one. I'm speaking to you. And so then the woman is so blown away that Jesus has told her all about her life and and has explained new things to her about worship and explained new things to her about who the Messiah is. And it says in John 28 or John chapter 4, verse 28, listen to this. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. And then it goes on to say, at the, towards the end of the passage in verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. They believed in Jesus because 
of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. The, the content of the woman's testimony was that she just told them what she knew about Jesus and what he had done. That's it. She just told what she knew. And I think that sometimes we're so intimidated, we just say, let the pastor tell people about Jesus because he has studied, he went to seminary. Let, let him answer the questions. I don't know what the right thing to say is. You don't need to know what the right thing to say is. Just tell people what you know about God and about who he is and about what he's done. This woman was not a trained theologian. She had no experience in, in this type of thing. She didn't know much about Jesus. She had only just met him. You know, I think sometimes, this is why, by the way, I think sometimes the most effective evangelists, the, the people who are most effective in sharing their faith are the people who just met Jesus because they just tell the basics about who he is and what he's done. They just tell about what God's done in their life. She, she didn't know much about Jesus. She'd only met him a few minutes ago. All she did was she told people what little she knew about what he had done for her. And that was enough. She proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus. Just as we're called to do. Listen, your purpose as a chosen race, our purpose as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, a people for his own possession, our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We exist for that purpose. And so the question I'll leave you with today is simple, and you probably know what it is. Are you fulfilling your purpose? Are you fulfilling the purpose that God has called you to? Are you making His excellencies known? Or are you searching for your own excellent life? Are you, is the purpose of your life to make Him known? Or is the purpose of your life to have a better one of your own? I mean, is it about you? Or is it about him? Clearly, the answer biblically is that our purpose is to make him known to all the world, all that he's done and all that he is. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of our God. Are you fulfilling your purpose by being part of a church? By serving as some part of of that body that's working towards that goal of making him known? Are you making his excellencies known in your actions? What do people see in your life? What, what example do they see in your life? Are you proclaiming how good he is? All he's done, all he is in your life? Are you proclaiming that in the things that you do? And are you proclaiming the excellencies of God? Whenever you have a chance with your mouth, telling people who He is and what He's done. That's our purpose. That should be our pursuit 
as followers of Jesus.